Welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast, where we discuss faith, mission, the church, and the intersection of all three. Today on the Roundtable, we continue our discussion on the book New Power and its implications for culture, leadership, and the church. Thanks for listening, and we're glad you're joining us at the Roundtable. All right, welcome to the Roundtable. Uh, today I am joined uh, by my two friends, uh, Brenna and Alan. Uh, everyone knows where they're from, so I'm not going to tell you. Um, but yeah, so today I'm excited. Uh, we are talking new power. And so we've had some great guests on so far this season, uh, hinting and talking around the idea of power and how it's utilized. And so today we're going to we're going to take a bit of a deeper dive into some of these ideas. And so if you've been listening to the podcast this season, uh, you've heard us talk about this idea. This is kind of the theme for season four. We're utilizing Jeremy Hyman's and Henry Tim's book, New Power, as kind of a a bit of a guide for the conversation. Uh, it's, it's definitely not uh, the truth or anything like that, but it is, it's been extremely helpful in getting some of these ideas. And so today we are going to talk about the idea of old power values and new power values. And so I'll just be, I'll just start and be just kind of upfront as you read the book. And I'd love to kind of get your guys thoughts. And if you maybe saw this, or maybe it's just the six, the loyalist in me that felt this way. But uh, it's in the book, it's really written old power values versus new power values, almost like there's like the clash of the titans, like there's the old way and the new way and only one only one way uh, must prevail. And so I don't necessarily see it that way. I I think there are some some uh, value to some of these old power values um, and and definitely uh, some value to the new power values. And so I don't know if that's just my own baggage or if you guys kind of read into that as well. Yeah, I think I started with that assumption when I was reading. I set that dichotomy up in my mind uh, and, you know, was like, okay, out with the old, in with the new. Sure. That's our that's our our normal process, right? But I, I don't think that's what they're saying. They're saying um, culturally things have shifted and both exist yeah. and both have benefits. And uh, so all of these things are like a sliding scale and we could look at uh, how do we utilize each of those in different situations? What would be useful for our organizations, for our churches, in thinking through how we structure ourselves for movement? Yeah, so when I was starting to read it, I got more excited about the possibilities for the church. Like, that's just mm-hmm. what I kept thinking about. And so in my head, I probably I probably made it a little bit more... Um, versus, you know, like this versus that, just because I wanted to reclaim some of the new power values, new power ideas for the church. And we've been talking about this for a long time. It felt like the book gave language to things that we've been thinking about, things that we're pushing towards, these different ideas, the the open collaboration, the getting beyond just the typical church hierarchy that we've kind of adopted and inherited for the last however long. And so in my head, I made it a, a versus thing, a this versus that. But I think you're right. I like the idea that, hey, there are places for new power. There's places for old power. And in the whole conversation, what I just keep coming back to is how does the church um, approach these ideas? You know, How yeah. does the church actually enter into this concept and this idea, especially now with the massive cultural upheaval that's been going on? That happened long before COVID, right? That happened, but we've noticed this has been going on for for a long time. 
Um, COVID has brought it a lot more to the surface, and a lot of people are kind of looking around and saying, hey, what does this actually mean? I love the, the using our kingdom imagination and just kind of dreaming and saying, oh, what could this actually mean for the church? Yeah, I've, you know, I think it, it always goes back to, and you know, I'll use the forge word of the day, context. Right. It's all it's it's about contextualizing this. Right. And so I think at some point in the book, they stop referring it to as old or at least they use uh, the synonym. Um, is it a synonym that it's it, it, I don't know, but they use the word traditional. Right. It's tra- <laughs> traditional value instead of old value. And, and it's one of those things where like when I there are old is not negative. New is not positive. You know, they're they're neutral. Right. There are some things where I want older in my life, right? When I'm looking at financial advice and, and stability or mentorship, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want a college kid mentoring me. <laughs> I don't want I don't want a kid who hasn't had more than $12 to his name, giving me insight on how I should, you know, plan for the future. I want someone who's been there, someone who has some age, someone who has some wisdom and, and vice versa. If I'm coaching a basketball team, you know, I, I don't want an old bald guy running around the court. I want some young buck who's going to go get it done. And so, again, there, there, there are positives and negatives to each of these things. And so as we kind of progress in our conversation today, if you're listening, I would encourage you to keep a very open mind around, hey, these are neutral things as we get into the context of the church. And that's what we want to spend our time doing today. I do think some of these potentially can have a negative effect, right? And so in general, it may not be a negative thing, but in the context of certain church contexts, it could actually be a negative. And so I, I do want to give some space for that because uh, I've got my I've got experiences in my own life as I read through this and even looking at some of the the, the paradigms in it, I instant like stories of my past came up and it's like Oh, I remember that. That's a hurt. I remember that that happening, and that that just totally sucked. And so, so we're we're gonna get into all of this. But before we do this, uh, I have a question. Um, I want to pose to you guys, mainly for our listeners, and a little bit for myself. But how are we defining power of value before we put the idea of new and old and all of these different things on it? What's a very generic? I mean, how would you guys generically define the idea of a power of value? Yeah, that's a good question, Terry. When I think about that, I have to go back to the idea of, okay, let's actually sit down. And this is just my overly simplistic brain is I have to say, well, let's define the word power then. And I think we talked about this at the at the first one, but the idea of power, you know, one definition of power is the ability to act or produce an effect. Um, another definition is capacity for being acted upon or undergoing an effect. Um, and so th- that ability to act or produce an effect. So, so power is able to be able to do something, have influence. So a value would be a posture in that. So what is the posture and how you're going to use that? Because again, you got to go to the idea of power is not negative or positive. It's not good, bad. Um, you know, it's, it's how it's being used. So like we, we said this before, God has power, mm. right? So God is a, a powerful being. He has power. He can produce an effect. He has the ability to act or produce an effect. Okay. So how did Jesus used his power. You know, you read the scriptures, Jesus laid his power down. You know, he came as a servant. He came uh, humbly. So uh, it's an interesting question when you say, okay, what are the different values? I would say, well, what are the different postures and how you use that power? You know, what are the different postures and how are you using it? What are those different ways? When I think of values, my mine instantly goes to Brené Brown and her work as far as, you know, what are your values and, and how are you going to show up in the world? And I, 
So when I think of new power values, I think about how do these how does power show up in the world? How does it display itself? And so uh, with these different power values, the um, the way that power shows up in the world is going to look different. It's going to act different. Uh, it's going to be utilized differently. Yeah. yeah, I think power, I think power is one of those um, unique ideas that the church uh, flexes, but I don't think the church talks about. Right. The, the church talks about leadership. Uh, that, I mean, anytime someone starts to have conversation around power, they try to they try to mask it with the idea of leadership. Right. So if someone is utilizing power positively or negatively, it's, it you know, oh, it's just leadership, leadership, leadership. And so and, and, and I think, you know, and we can go we can talk for hours about how we define leadership and all that. But for me, uh, I, I think of leadership and power really as two different things. I think leadership is the ability to influence someone. It's more relational, in my opinion, like the pure, the purest uh, states of leadership, right? Like really good, healthy leadership is highly relational. It, it, there is, there's, there's been transaction there, right? You have capital in, in someone else that if you say something, you're going to have an immense amount of influence on. I think power comes back to authority, Power is the ability to say, okay, uh, yes, I may have influence in your life, but it's exactly how Alan, the definition he used, it's I'm going to enact some sort of action or change. And so uh, a coach can be influential, but a good coach isn't going to tell you what to do. You know, So a coach will utilize leadership, but maybe not power. But there are certain circumstances where power has to be given, right? And I think in every every aspect of every moment, there is a there's an element of power being used. The question is who's who's using it, right? Who's 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 wielding that that power? And I think oftentimes in the church, and this is you know we can transition the conversation here in a second to this is, I think we've given leadership to a lot of people, we've given influence to a lot of people, but power is often held by just very few people and and we get to be we get we we're tend to be very stingy in how we deal with power there was a there's a great little example at the beginning of uh, i think it's chapter 2 here in the book where they talk about uh, NASA and their R&D department and in the R&D department you know they have a traditional kind of old power posture because as you said Terry it is about authority and about who's using it but i also think it's about how they're using yeah. it and that's kind of what this conversation is about. It's who's using it, but how it's being used. And in the book, they talk about their R&D department. They had a very um, old power model, but then they had a new power model, a new power value model that showed up. But here's some of the descriptions. Um, here's They said this. They go, the first group of the old power values, it says they had uh, clear boundaries between us and them, right? They also said uh, the group believed deeply in the value of expertise, in other words, you have the experts and you got to trust the experts, right? This is the posture that they had when they were using their, their power. They said their instinct was to hoard information about their work. So you had the expertise, but you're also going to hoard this information. Like we have to hang on to it. We can't just freely share it. And then they said professional privileges and knowledge uh, were hard-won currency. Mm. So in that traditional old power uh values in NASA, this idea that, you know, oh, I've got, the, I'm the expert in this. I've got, I've got all the knowledge and this is currency in this department. But then they said, Hey, we're going to open, have this open invitation or uh, what they call it, open innovation group. And they said in that, 
They had new power values. They said they were more open to collaboration, believed in the possibility of crowd wisdom, and wanted to open up their world to let others join in. So both of these groups have powers, have a have power, right? Have authority, have all this stuff. But how do they use it? What does it actually look like? You know, I thought was interesting on that NASA story was that the researcher who watched that um, and was was wondering, you know, these these two groups as they did the innovation formed and there was the old power, you know, it wasn't like old, young, you know, what was the difference? And it was who valued, had old power values and new power values. And the core for those old power crowd was what she found was the new power folks presented a challenge to their core identity. And when I read that, I was like, oh, oh boy. Uh, because I think as church leaders, uh, you know, that is that is a word for us of where uh, our, is our identity being challenged uh, and where do we need to examine that? All right, well, let's go to the tail of the tape, right? So that's that's a, my male version of saying we're going to look at these two different things. I guess there are women who are fighting these days, so uh, but we'll scratch that. I have no idea. That's what, what I thought, right? About. The tail of the tape. <laughs> it's like when you have a fight, and it's like, oh, this person's six foot one, this person's five foot nine, and so ah, uh, get your stats. your stats. Let's go to the stats. Okay. Let's go to the let's, let's go, go to the, the st- verses, uh-huh. right? And so, so okay. the way Hyman's and Tim's presents this idea, they they actually call it the tale of two mindsets. So I think they're the tale of the tape. They're 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 playing on it a little bit. But they're really pinning these two things against each other. The old power values versus the new power values. All right. So l- let me, let me, there's five of these. So let me nail them out real quick. And then I'd love to just go through each set of these and get your guys' thoughts. And really, let's look at it through the lens of the church. Uh, and then I'd really love to hear, make sure that we, we have this thing dripping uh, in, in the life and work of Christ. Because I think... We always have to read Jesus ourselves, right? That's another forge word of the day. We've got to always come back to Jesus and say, okay, how do these, how does this power, uh, how, how would Jesus utilize this? Or is this something Jesus would be like, yeah, let's stay away from that, right? All right, so here, here are the old power values and the new power values that these guys uh, kind of present to one another. So the first one is formal governance versus informal governance, right? So it's uh, managerialism, institutionalism versus uh, decision-making, self-organization, sorts of things. The second one is competition versus collaboration, right? So it's exclusivity, resources, and consolidation versus the idea of crowd wisdom, sharing, and open sourcing. Uh, The third one is confidentiality uh, versus uh, radical transparency, right? So keeping discretion, uh, separation between private and pr- uh, public spheres versus just being open, openly candid about all things. Uh, the fourth one is expertise versus maker culture, right? So it's the idea of uh, professionalism, specialization, expertise versus the do-it-ourself ethic, the idea that, hey, everyone has a role to play in this. You don't have to be an expert to be a practitioner, right? Uh, And then the last one, the fifth one, is long-term affiliation and loyalty versus short-term conditional affiliation. So it's the idea of less overall participation, where it's like, uh, I, I only eat Mexican food at one Mexican restaurant, 
uh, versus uh, I am a lover of Mexican food and I eat them at all the restaurants, right? So I I, I want a variety, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna spread my Mexican food dollars to a bunch of restaurants versus just one. All right, all right. So uh, these are the five that these guys kind of use as their their basic idea. Let's jump into the first one: formal versus informal governances. When you guys read this and were working through some of this, what what what's the implication of this for the church? It's funny because uh, on that page in big orange letters, I put back, I put, I put on there as a note, giving church back to the people. Mm. <laughs> like that was when I saw this, it was like, oh, it's like this is. I feel like you're giving the idea of church and the idea of what it means to be the church back to people. So, you know, formal governance, I mean, that's just something we have inherited. Uh, Hirsch always talks about that. We have inherited a Eurocentric concept and idea of what church is and how we've governed it. And now we're saying, you know what? The church is this It's this organism. It's this body. It's this movement of believers who are out there doing what God has called them to do. And so, yeah, it is a little informal, a little bit like, hey, I'm going to opt in on the decision-making, right? Self-organization. It was never... I don't know if it was never meant. I don't want to look back at the however many thousands of years of church history and say that was all bad because we had formal governance. <laughs> I'm not going to be that sure. brazen or brash um, because you know I, I I think the church is um, is beautiful. It is the bride of Christ. You know we'll, we're never going to get it right. But I love this idea of how do we give it back to people in this? You know that everybody has an opportunity to uh, to have a say in it, to have a say, hey, this is what the, this is going to look like. Yeah, I, th- I think the temptation here is when you hear the idea of formal governance versus informal governance is, I, I think your mind instantly goes to, okay, what kind of church? What, what, what do your bylaws say? Like, how are you governed by the bylaws? Are you congregational-led? So then the power is in the hands of the people, right? So the people get to throw the vote and kick someone out, blah, blah, blah. Uh, are you elder-led? Are you pastor-led? And all of those sorts of things. I, I would actually can make the argument that all of those are formal governances, right? Informal governance really isn't about giving the people congregational-led church. This is the, We're not advocating for that. I think it's like... No, power is in the ability to do ministry. So whether you're elder-led, pastor-led, congregational-led, whatever-led, hopefully you're spirit-led, you are letting the people do the ministry, right? I think this, the biggest implication is the priesthood of all believers, right? Informal governance is saying, no, the power doesn't exist in a handful of people who preach or or make announcements or make decisions or uh, decide budgets. Um, the power truly is in the people as they serve as the priests of the community. Yeah, I think uh, like practically, if you're thinking about mission in like formal governments versus informal, um, you know, in a formal setting, the leaders at the top would decide this is what we as a group are doing yeah. for mission. This is how we're going to show up in our community. And so I've decided and now I'm going to recruit you to come and to serve in the ministry that I've decided that we will do as a community. Whereas informal would be like, hey, where do you see that we need to show up in the community? And where do you feel called to do that? And allowing there to be uh, people's fingerprints all over what the mission of the church is going to be or the way that this uh, church is going to show up in the community. 
I think that would be a really practical example of yeah. of how to move from old power to new power. Yeah, I was a, I was a part of a church that I've I've been I've been a part of congregational led organizations and I've been a part of pastor elder led organizations, and uh, I'll just tell you they're they're all equally dysfunctional, <laughs> and so <laughs> it, 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 and it's one of the again because when you're having those conversations, it's about power and. You can be congregational led, and I was a part of a church that was congregational led, and the power was all the power was about who could flex the resources, right? Who's going to make the money decisions? Who's going to make that's what that's what the power was about. The power had nothing to do with impacting the community, about reaching people for Jesus, making new disciples. No power was even being pushed in that direction. It was about who's going to make the decisions. And so in the congregational-led church, there were a handful of very influential people in that congregation who basically called the shots. And then when it came to ministry, they would look to the, the professionals and say, hey, that's you guys go do this now. And it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, we're totally missing it. And vice versa, right? You have people who are making the elder led decisions and they're making all those decisions and 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 they're not they're looking at their people and say well hey you don't worry about uh going out and doing things because we're going to provide a really great show uh, over here um and so now we're using very unhealthy examples and I'm sure there are perfectly healthy examples of congregational led elder led pastor led uh where where power is truly being given authorities being and people are being empowered uh, and, and the people do feel like they are empowered to go and do the ministry uh, of of reconciliation, right? The, the work of Christ. But often we don't see that, right? I, I think that I think those examples are few and far between. And that's what we want. I think honestly, out of a, a sense of love and desire for the kingdom, we want to see more of that, right? And so I think we have to think through what does it look like to to empower every aspect of your community does everybody in your your community have the ability to serve as a priest to the to the to the power that they are able to do that right and and not in a we're going to hold it over you because you're not pulling your weight but like letting people truly live and serve as as, as the as the priesthood um of all saints let's 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 jump to the second one uh, so we talked about formal informal governance the second one, and I think this is this is probably one of the one of the two that I think are the biggest ones is the idea of competition versus collaboration. So when you think about the church, uh, where do we see competition creep its head in, and is it good or bad? Because um, competition in of itself is not a negative thing. Competition can be very good, um, but is it a good thing in the church? And then collaboration. I've seen collaboration be a, a nightmare and a disaster. But in the church, is it a good or a bad thing? What are you guys' thoughts? I think there's a a competition for people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, we're, uh, churches are like, well, you know, we're the only ones in town doing it this sure. way. Or those people are um, off and we're the ones that are right. Um, I was in a church a few months back that a part of their practice was to pray for all of the other congregations in mm. the city uh, as a part of their initial prayer. I thought, wow, that that's absolutely fantastic as a, a partnering with other uh, faith communities in uh, impacting our city. I thought, man, great, great practice, great posture in, in providing that collaborative environment. Yeah. 
you almost always see competition when it comes down to resources. So just like you said, Brenda, people do it over people. And so then it becomes a posture of, of kind of what is your mindset? And we've talked about this before, but the idea between scarcity and abundance, competition is when there's not enough, right? Competition is we don't have enough people. We don't have enough resources. I mean, sometimes competition can be just straight up ego. I think, you know, like, Hey, we're going to have the biggest and the best and whatever, but really it kind of comes down to, uh, I got to make sure that me and mine are taken care of and whatever that looks like. Collaboration takes place when it's like, Hey, no, we have a common vision, a common mission, a common goal, and we're all going about this. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think you've seen this in the past. I still remember when I first started working at churches, I was in a particular denomination and that denomination without ever really saying it out loud, kind of had the idea of like, we're the only, we're the only really group in town. Right. I remember, I remember, uh, you know, one of the leaders talking about how, Hey, if every, you know, insert denominational name church in our town were to expand by, you know, 10% or not expand, but like expand by, you know, whatever, we'd still have this many people in our town that didn't find a church. I'm like, we, you just discounted the rest of the churches in town, you know, and I, you could disagree. You could help all that, but I still think the spirit's working and Jesus is being glorified in other churches that don't seem to look and act and think like us. And so I do like the idea of that was one of the ones I got really kind of excited about because we're starting to see more of, it's not about the denominational name. It's not about these things, but it is about the collaboration and how we come together and how we are, um, you know, being about the kingdom in our community as a, as the people of God, whether we're Baptist, Methodist, you know, whatever it is, you know, we're coming together and we are um, collaborating yeah. in this. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up an, uh, as an athlete. I, I've coached sports for years, uh, various different levels. And so competition has always been a part of my life. Um, and, and I've been a part of FCA and I've heard all the, you know, athletes turn preachers, you know, preach on competition. And, you know, I've, I've just to be honest, man, I've, I've never when I look at the life of Christ, I, I don't see a lot of competition there. You know, if, if I had to pick between the two, I see a whole lot of collaboration uh, from Jesus but I don't see, I can't, at least nothing's coming to my mind. Um, I mean, nowhere does Jesus take the 12 disciples and say, all right, guys, let's play a game. It's, it's like, who's getting fish tonight? You know, right. It's, it's, you know, who's, who's, who's going to get, you know, bread tonight. It, 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 he never really does that. It, it is more of a collaboration. It's what's coming alongside. It's working. It's, it's, it's equipping people. And so even when we think, you know, the kingdom of the city type of deal where it's like, how are churches collaborating versus how are churches competing? And so uh, definitely lots of implications on this one for the church, um, for, for for pastors to really sit and think about. Yeah, if you think about, too, not even just collaborating within churches, but collaborating with other organizations in your city, too, that, you know, often there'll be a, a non-faith-based organization that's getting after something. Uh, but in the church, we feel like we need to create our faith-based version of that instead of partnering with people of other faiths to get after it as well. And so uh, where can we collaborate with people who are not um, believing the same as we, but have the same goals in mind? Yeah, that's really good. All right, let's jump to the next one. All right. So the, the next one that, that they talk about is the idea of confidentiality versus radical transparency. Now, uh, preface this one. I do think 
there are places for both of these in the church, right? Um, uh, but again, let's let's jump into it. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts uh, about how what are the implications of being radically transparent versus holding confidence um, when it comes to the the work of the church. Well, I mean, one of the things you're going to see right now is people people have no place for anything but radical transparency mm-hmm. in some form or fashion, and I would say radical appropriate yes. transparency okay like like people are going i i am done with organizations that i cannot trust yeah. you know there have been so many organizations that you dig in even charitable organizations you dig into their books and you're realizing the ca ceo is making millions of dollars but they're you know supposedly this charitable organization whatever it is people are like i'm done like I, i'm tired of that so culturally right now there's been this huge uh, pushback towards a secretive confidentiality approach to this. Now, again, I will say radical appropriate transparency yeah. when it comes to that. I think people want appropriate transparency. Yeah, I think it's important because um, there, there are some things that I think can be held in confidence, right? Um, you don't want your pastor, you know, dropping in illustrations from your last counseling meeting with him in his sermon on Sunday, right? It was like, well, did you know about Brenna? Well, let me tell you about Joel and Brenna's marriage and just drop some, you know, some trans, let's be transparent, right? So there, I love the, it is appropriate, right? So, so there, we're not advocating like, oh, there should be no confidentiality. No, there, there are things that need to be held, but you make a great point, Alan, that there are some things. And, and I think that's where we have to almost just like, it's, it's, you have to take each one. And just decide, hey, is this something that needs to be confidential or does this need to be transparent? And then I think we have to ask ourselves a question underneath that is why do we think if we choose confidential, why do we think it needs to be confidential? And a lot of times it's ego, appearance and all of that. Self preservation. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Or not. We've made a mistake, you know, and uh, if we just don't talk about it, uh, then it's it's easier to deal with in the short term. Um, and I think we've got to be able to say, man, I messed up in this area and, and own it. And it's interesting, you know, um, we're a a people who, uh, are forgiven. We're a people who can freely go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. Um, but yet sometimes we are, uh, not quick to own, uh, our own leadership flaws. Like we have to have this persona or we have to, you know, have a certain brand. Um, and I, I think you're right, Alan. I think the brand is changing <laughs> to to being a person who is transparent and, and honest and owns their own, their own mistakes or owns their own flaws um, and seeks to uh, make things right, seeks to create change rather than uh, build up their own image. Well, this this probably cuts a little too close to home uh, for me, so I won't go into it a whole lot. But a case in point would be, have you guys heard of the um, hashtag NDA free movement mm-hmm. that's been going on? Um, it's the idea that you have NDAs within a church, a non-disclosure agreement or a non-disparagement agreement within a church. And, you know, churches are using their power, their influence, their, you know, really threats to make people sign this stuff. And there's a huge backlash against it right now. There's an entire website, ndafree.org, where people are going, no, churches should never, ever take that posture of of that. And there's a, a huge, um, you know, movement of that. And but but we're in that space, right? We're in that space where you're going to have confidentiality. You know, we have to sign this NDA before all this stuff goes down. 
And it's like, no, what, what, whatever happened to radical transparency? Where, you know, where in the Bible do you ever see an NDA? Uh, you know, wh- where do you ever see Jesus going? Okay, no, I don't ever want you talking about this, and I'm going to pay you to go away yeah. because you're not yeah. going to talk and, about and this. And I think, and again, I, th- I do think there are aspects where uh, I'm reminded of, of uh, you know, all things are profitable, but not uh, all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable, right? And so I think there are times where, you know, confidential things can be held, right? And so, uh, and 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 I think it 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 needs to be for the it should be always for the health of the people, right? The health of those involved. Again, there are things that I think we have to come out and say. So like for, I'll throw out an example in, in my life. Uh, and I will say this before I share this story, um, because I, I, I have, I at least have hope that things have changed. People like Brene Brown have gone and they've, they've created a lot of space in the church to take steps towards vulnerability. And I'm so, so grateful for that. Um, but it hasn't always been that way where if you were to talk about certain things, you were going to get, you were going to get lit up. Right. And, and I, I remember, uh, this was several years ago. I was, I was preaching at a church. I was a part of a church on staff and was preaching. And, uh, I, I there was a kind of thing is like, Hey, don't air out your dirty laundry in your sermon, which, okay, I get it's, it's not about me and all that. Uh, but, uh, I, I got the awesome, uh, sermon uh, spot of preaching the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. Right? Everyone loves everyone loves that Sunday. Yeah. Oh yeah. I used to oh, always yeah. get that one. Here's the throwaway, throwaway Sunday, Sunday, right? And yeah. it's like you know you, you get that Sunday eight out of ten times you're preaching on New Year's resolutions, right? So it's like okay, let's talk about New Year's. Re- and I hate. I am not a New Year's resolution guy. I hate them. I I think they're stupid. If you love them, good for you. Um, so I go in and I was like, I'm going to preach a sermon. I'm just going to blast these things. And so I get up and I'm just hitting it and people are loving it. People are laughing. It's great. And I come to like, hey, but we need to be real, right? We, we Goals are good. Let's do these things. We should always have things. We should always be looking. How do we make progress? How do we get better? And so I used a personal example in my own life. Now, this was probably in 2006. Six or seven, right when Bethany was just born. Now, if you know me, that is roughly when I weighed about 471 pounds. You can go, big boy. You big can boy. look at, you can go on my social media. I don't, I don't hide those pictures. They're there. Uh, you go look, be, be, be impressed at my bigness. And uh it was obvious that I was, you know, people were shocked that I was almost 500 pounds. They were like, whoa, I didn't think you were that big. Uh, cause I do carry my weight very, very well. Uh, but no one walked away on a sudden and ever thought that Terry's a very fat. He's, he's, you know, everyone knew I was big. So I use this example of a, pro- a progress I want to make in this new year is I want to lose weight. And so I shared with the community, uh, in my sermon that I weighed, uh, you know, 450 plus pounds and talked about it, got real, real about it talked about my struggles and how I got there and and really what do I need to do to get better right and and talked about disciplines and even talking about spiritual disciplines because I I'm a firm believer that weight loss is a spiritual thing as much as it is a physical thing um as someone who's lost 170 plus pounds I can that's that I'm going to go to my grave with that that belief 
get off the stage. People come up to me. They're like, Terry, thank you for being so vulnerable. I struggled with my weight all my life. Blah, blah. I get so many people just probably more impact than any other sermon that I've preached. And it was a total throwaway sermon. I'll just be honest. I just threw some things together because I was hanging out with my family for Christmas. I was like, I'll talk about something for 25 minutes. I get back in the office on that that Tuesday and I get the reaming out of my life because how dare you stand on the platform and and admit and and, and share your sin of gluttony and being fat and overweight and all of that. And I and I just remember being told you are you are the stage isn't a place to be vulnerable. It's not a place to be transparent. And I would love to say this was like 1970 something, but this was a decade ago. It's not that long ago. Yeah, our leaders couldn't be weak. And and it, because if you if you were a leader and you had any sense of sin in your own life, there was this idea that you would be looked down upon. And then then on the flip side is we get so angry as leaders when our people aren't willing to give us breaks. Or willing to like, like, oh, I want to be human. I was like, well, how do we know that you're human if you aren't be vulnerable, right? It's it's and so it's a two way street, and so there is a real mess in the church for sure about transparency, uh, from the NDA issue all the way down to two people just being able to be who they are in a small group, right? I've I've heard people the pressure of like, I can't be in a small group and I don't feel like I have the space to be able to really share how I feel or really be able to share my burdens and things like that. Um, I, I, I'm not going to get into it because we, we've got to move on. But like infertility, that's one of my soapbox things that I, I have such a heart for that community. And it's one of the we rarely talk about that in the church because it's 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 so hard and we don't create really great space, transparency and vulnerability and stuff. We got to do better for sure. Uh, but this is one of those things for sure. So I work with uh, medical students who are training to be osteopaths and we work on their communication skills uh, when they're interacting with patients. And one of the things that we train the students to do is to interact with the person in front of them as a person, not just a medical problem. So you're a person, they're a person, you are equal humans. And so we share life and to kind of have that posture. And so we say, you need to build some rapport that is professionally appropriate. You should share some of your life uh, with your patient as a human connector, as we are both humans. Um, I'm not just a doctor with authority, but we connect at that human level. Um, where it gets into trouble is where you mm. share, <laughs> where you uh, build rapport with somebody. So sometimes, you know, life stuff, you would want to build rapport around hobbies or family or those type of things. A bad place to build rapport is when you're taking a sexual history. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Do not yeah. recommend. Zero out of ten. Not a good idea. Uh, and so that's a funny story. And, and, you know, we see students accidentally do that and we we give feedback against that. Um, so, you know, as as a framework, though, um, we're saying and you're not building rapport to to dump your own stuff. You're building rapport and you're sharing about yourself to recognize that we're both human and to make a human connection and it's benefits the patient. So as we are having radical transparency is what we're sharing um, creating a human connection uh, and is 
as appropriate <laughs> um, and it's for others benefit uh, and our benefit for us to be real. Um, but I, I just think that's such a great posture and how we're radically transparent yeah. with people. Yeah. And, I, and before we move on to the next two, uh, we'll, we'll, let me just take a quick break here in the middle and, and just re- kind of reiterate some of the things that we, we kind of preface at the beginning that the, these are very neutral ideas, right? These values can be very neutral. Um, there are, there is, again, there's a place where confidentiality is a good thing, place where transparency is a bad thing. Um, what we have to realize is we have to realize we have to go back, we have to contextualize this, right? So in our context, in the Western world, in, in, in another way we can say in the privileged world, right? There, there, there is space that we need to get better at. And so when we look at these things, we have to say, where do we have to get better? And I think transparency is one of those where we have to get better. Collaboration, we have to get better. Um, and, and I think that's key for us to understand. And so I, it would be easy to get bristled in this conversation, but no need for that. We're just looking at how do we get better? All right, so let's let's look at this this fourth set. The fourth set, I think, really hits the Forge world pretty strong because we talk a lot about this, is the idea between experts versus makers, right? And so they use the idea of maker, uh, which if, if you are following anything in the tech world, uh, we are experiencing a maker culture boom where you have sites like Etsy and Pinterest and all of these sorts of uh, uh, places where pl- there are platforms where people are embracing the maker culture, whether that is uh, wood furniture making. Like I, 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 I am blown away by how many people make furniture now. Like, I mean, we've always had the Amish, right? The Amish have always made furniture, right? They, they at least make the fireplaces, right? Isn't the Amish the fireplace? The Amish fireplace. Uh, by I've never Christmas. heard that before. You've never heard of the Amish fireplace. Never heard that before. No. Oh, that's like a. They have like commercials, which is funny because in Texas we don't need fireplaces, but you can you find the Amish fireplace commercial. I don't know. You guys had that ice storm. It might be. We coming. did have that ice storm, right? <laughs> People were begging for that. That was went on everyone's Christmas list for this year. Um, but it but it's this this idea of craft, right? So now you have, like, when I grew up as a kid, no one made furniture except the Amish, or you owned a business. No one made their own beer unless you were like a kid and you were just trying to throw some crap together to get drunk. But now it's like, oh, no, you have craft beer, you have craft jewelry, you have craft furniture and boutique fashion. And Home Depot's, live... Home Depot's uh, phrases, you can do it, we can help or something right. like that. Yeah, right? exactly. I think, yeah, exactly right. And so we are living in a culture where the the maker culture is booming. Uh, but businesses and organizations are falling way behind way fast on some of this uh, because in business and in organizations, we still put such a high value and emphasis on the expert, right? We, we want we want to hear from the expert. We want to read the what the expert has to say. We want to get coached by an expert. We blah, 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 blah. Uh, I did all the expert crap for my weight loss journey. Like what was most helpful for me is listening to other practitioners, people who have been there before. Uh, I remember telling someone recently is like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm doing some nutrition and, and health coaching and I still weigh 297 pounds and people look at me and they're like, oh, why, why are you coaching people on how to lose weight? You're almost 300 pounds. You're fat. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's true, but I'm not an expert. 
but I've lost 170 pounds. I've got some, I've got some experience in doing this. Right. Um, and so I, 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 I'm a practitioner, right. And so people find value in going to the people who have done it, uh, and not just the expert. And so what are your guys thoughts? What's the implication for the church as we move away from expert culture and more into maker culture? So just recently I was talking to a, a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine here in town, and we were looking at his, you know, vision, mission, values, all of those things. And one of the things that we were talking about was the idea that, you know, here is the mission of the church, right? The big C, the organization of the church. You know, here's the things that they're going to do. They're going to target these communities, and they're going to come up with ways to do that. I'm like, this is brilliant, love it. But what about the activating of all the people, right? All the people in the church, because you can have an organization that has a vision, but, you know, God's given the people in the pews, the people in your congregation, the people in your community, a vision as well. And how are you going to come alongside and empower them and support them and release them and give them the language and the license and all that? And I think that is where, one, Forge, we've been harping on this for a long time. But two, I think this is really where the church can, can look at itself and say, how am I releasing and empowering the people in our communities to be makers, to do, hey, you can go do it. Like, go run this thing. I, I keep thinking, I, with this, I just come back to uh, Luke 9 and 10. You know, Luke 9, where, where Jesus sends out the 12. He's like, hey, go do this thing. Go proclaim and go show people the kingdom. And then Luke 10, he gets to 72. Go do it. You know, there's no real constraint. He's like, you go do it. Here's here's some conditions I have for you. You know, the person of peace, all of these different things. But he's like, go do it. Like, go go be about this. Go create. Go go uh, be about the kingdom. And I love that posture. And I think of all of these, this is the one I think that the church is primed for. Again, as you said, Terry, the culture is already doing it. Culture is running with it. You know, what do they say right now? Everybody under the millennial, like millennial generation and under, they don't have a job. They have jobs. <laughs> they always have a side gig. They have a side hustle. They have all this stuff because they are out creating. They're out doing things. And I think the church can needs to take a look at that and go, man, how are we coming alongside people and empowering them the way they, because God's already called them. God is calling them and sending them. How do we come alongside them? You know, when I think about <clears throat> Jesus and how he um, created makers, uh, you know, the the story of the woman at the well, the woman at the well was the first person that Jesus sent to go proclaim. She was the first person that Jesus put uh, the proclamation into the hands of and said, now go and, and tell your people. Um, and she had you know, no expertise except for her experience, like you're talking about, Terry. No expertise except for her encounter with Jesus. And we uh, have professionalized ministry. And we've got this leader and lady divide. And and there is something to be said for um, good theology and, and, and all of that, for sure. I mean, we don't want to discount that uh, in the work of, of seminaries and the work of theologians. Uh, but there's something there where we have got to uh, bring the bar, the, the bar that people perceive that they have to have a certain expertise to be able to go and proclaim um, that that people at the well that meet Jesus are also commissioned at the same time. I think this is a a issue and a topic that should be on everyone listening. Uh, it should be on their 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 top their radar their top list of things they need to be thinking about right. If you listen to this podcast, 
uh, subscribe and share five <laughs> stars on iTunes and Spotify. Um, but if you're listening to this podcast, you most likely are interested in mission and movement. And this value is how movements truly are. Like it is the boots on the ground aspect of the movement, right? When you can take your idea, right? And for us, the idea is Jesus is Lord. When you can take the idea that Jesus is Lord and put it in the hands of people and say, okay, take this and make it and 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 create and, and spread it and share it. Because when people make something, every now and then you'll find someone who will create something and it's like, I'm not going to show anybody, right? And and really, they're all they're waiting for is someone to ask them, will you please show me, right? No, it's like when you make something, you want to show someone, right? Like, so I'm, I'm a sneakerhead. I, I wish I had, if I had more money, I would spend it all on shoes. Um, and so this year I was like, you know what? I, I would love to start designing and like customizing shoes. And so I, I picked up a really cheap pair of knockoff uh, Air Force Ones. And I'm like, I'm going to like paint and design and like create and do that. And so, and when I was done, Bethany's sitting there watching me and she's like, and I was like, oh, go grab my phone. She's like, what, you're, you're going to put that on social media? And I'm like, yeah, I made something. I like, I, I, you, you make something because you want to, sh- you share it. Right. And so if you can get people to take your idea, Jesus is Lord, disciple making, and you can put it in the hands of people to play with it, like putty and shape it and guide it and let them then turn around and share it. You will see movement happen. Um, and so, but when we hold it back and we reserve it and say, no, 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 there's an expertise way to do this, right? So I can only ever get my shoes from Nike. I can never get a, like the number one shoe right now on the market, we're filming this right before Halloween, uh, is the Freddy Krueger Air Force Ones, right? So they basically, someone went out and did the Freddy Krueger sweater, the, the red and the green and the kind of the, the gross, dirty, dingy look. And they designed a pair of Nikes on that. And people are like hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'll, I'll take all the money and give me the shoes, right? And so it's one of those things where it's like, no, you you got to let makers make. You got to let them create. But when we hold it and say, no, 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 this is only reserved for the platform. We only in sermons and from professional clergy can we ever really espouse these things so you go get all your friends and you can hype us up and bring them to this event um you're going to you may do that really well if you're really magnetic and you have a lot of resources and you can do like cool things and yeah you can get a lot of people in a room and there are some people they do that well they'll have ten thousand people in a church on a weekend most people can't do that and so it actually limits what we can do in the movement I think about, too, if we're talking about authority um, and being power and Jesus having all authority. And so he is talking with people and they would bring something up. And instead of being the answer person or the authority or like, let me let me just say this really well. He'd say, what do you think? Uh, And that would be like a difference between being an expert and a maker is that people got to speak into that. They got to process that. And instead of being like, well, let me, let me tell you all the things I'm going to say it perfectly because I'm Jesus and my theology is going to be on point. Uh, 
people's fingerprints got to get in there and they got to be a part of the conversation. And how are we as leaders um, not giving people the answer and asking people questions uh, for them to answer, for them to wrestle through? Yeah, that's huge. All right, so let's let's uh, let's hit this last one, and and I'll be I'll be honest. This is the one I struggle with the most. <laughs> yeah. As a six on the Enneagram, uh, I am all about loyalty, but I do I in the book I've got all sorts of notes written up uh, on this one, and I think there is a ginormous implication for the church. But this last one is long term versus transient affiliation. So. I, growing up as a pastor, literally, I grew up, I was 18 when I became full-time pastor. Growing up into my adult life as a pastor, I, it was always ingrained in me, you should be a part of one church, and that's your faith community. You are to be loyal there. You're all of your tithe, all of your resources, all of it that you give should go to this one aspect, and it should be your one-stop shop for everything, right? Um, but we are seeing in culture now where there are a lot of people who are a little more transient in their engagement. And uh, I think Hyman's and Tim's does a really interesting, and they're not talking about the church when they're writing about this. They're actually, the example they give is Blockbuster, uh, which is a, a uh, uh, has a soft spot in my heart as a, <laughs> a, a dealer of movies. Um, I, I still love me some Blockbuster video. Um, I miss that place. But, um, Come to Oregon. We got the last one. I know the last one. That's a great documentary. I love that. Uh, but the idea of how do we create spaces where people can engage? And 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 I'll say this, and I and love to get your guys' thoughts. I love. Uh, there's. I'll just read the quote from the book because I thought I think Hyman's and Tim's does a great job when they're talking about this idea of affiliation. Um, when it comes to the idea of transit affiliation versus long term loyal, um, affiliation. And it says, speaking of people in general, uh, this new culture, they tend to opt in at particular moments and then opt out again, right? Uh, we shouldn't confuse this with a lack of engagement. Rather, it is a different way of taking part. This shift has big implications for organizations, small and large. Now, as pastors... Uh, we would love to write the book and say, hey, here's how you should participate. You should come every Sunday. When I was, when we planted our first church in 1997, that at that time, you were doing fantastic as a church if you got your people to come to church 50% of the time. If you got them twice a month, you were doing a good job. Fast forward 25 years later, you're doing a good job if you're getting them once a month. Right. And so and there are a lot of different factors. And I've heard people demonize uh, some of these factors. Right. People are valuing like sports They're You know, they're 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 their church is the, the soccer field or it's this or, you know, it's like they, they're idols. Uh, maybe. I don't know. But I don't think you we don't gain anything by going down that road. What we have to realize is that people are going to participate and affiliate with the church in very different ways. And it's not getting any better. We're not getting closer to, you know, a hundred percent attendance. We're getting further away from it. So with that in mind, what's the implication for the church? How do we engage people? How do we accept people's engagement in, in real tangible ways, knowing that 
they're not going to be loyal. And, and, and guess what, pastor, if you're, if you're preaching every Sunday, they're not listening to your sermon every week. They're probably listening to Matt Carter or, or one of those other dudes who's out there, you know, Matt Chandler or, you know, whoever. For me, when I look at this, so what, what, that was the one I did. I, I, you know, I, I bristled at that one as well because, you know, working in the church for so long, you did kind of have that, that idea of like, oh no, you're, you know, you got to be loyal. You got to be a part of this thing. We're trying to do a movement here. We're trying to be about all this. And when you're not there, it hurts us. But when I look at it culturally, I look at it and people go, you know what? Because of the um, uh, confidentiality, no radical transparency, people look at um, organizations and they go, you know what? You're not loyal to me, so why should I be loyal to you? Um, you know, you think about the big shift that's been going on in the last 20 years with, you know, um, you know, it used to be back in the day, you know, one one person could work for a company for 50 to 60 years, get that pension and move on. And now it's like, nope. You, you, nobody's getting a pension. <laughs> Nobody sticks with the company for too long because the company's not been loyal to you. The other thing I think about is this, um, and it goes back to one of the things that Hirsch talks about a lot, which is you know we're perfectly designed for the outcomes that we're achieving. The church has postured itself as a dispenser of religious goods and services, and when we posture ourselves that way, we look at everybody in the pew as a consumer. Well, you know what? You know what the the outcome of a consumer is. Well, there's a better product down the road, yeah. or there's a better youth group. So I might go here because this is good for me, but my kids are going to go there because that's better for them. And so, well, duh, it makes sense that there's not going to be any loyalty. We have positioned ourselves as we've tried to be the one stop for everybody, the one stop shop for everybody. You can come and we will take care of everybody for you. But then it's like, oh, no, wait, but you know what? That church over there has better things. And that church over there has, oh, they have some good stuff over there. And so, yeah, that's just a natural outcome. There's not going to be a lot of that. And when you look at it, you go back to sheer attendance. I mean, even that's what you're talking yeah. about. We, we look at it as sheer attendance. It is, it is, our, is your butt in the pew on Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or in a small group or serving and all these different things, as opposed to, are you engaging in the movement? Some of the best people I've known who are engaging in kingdom movement um, I don't know if I should say this out loud, but they are not faithful churchgoers as far sure. as what you're saying, as far as like actually participating in a church gathering on a Sunday, every Sunday, you know, that was always the hallmark of, you know, they were there every Sunday, you know, and it was like, oh, that was a good Christian person because they were there every Sunday. Man, I'm telling you, I've seen people do amazing kingdom work out there who, yeah, they 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 love the body, they love the the church, they love the bride, they love all that. But they're not all that faithful in actually attending the gathering, but they're doing some amazing stuff. Yeah, that just goes to show how we need new metrics, not just, you know, for health of, of leaders, too. You need a new metric because you're going to feel like crap about yourself all the time. If your metric is people attending church every Sunday and that is not the culture boo, you're, you're sure. setting yourself up for failure in this new power culture. Uh, but what opportunity of people, uh, you know, why aren't they there? Are they not there because they're on the soccer field? Well, instead of telling them that they need to be in church and not the soccer field, how are you leveraging their, their space in that soccer field? How are you equipping them to minister in that that place and then being a part of your congregation is going to be necessary because you are equipping and helping them to live into that reality. Uh, but I think for our own health, man, we need some new metrics uh, for 
for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had the privilege of working with church planters for many years, and um, man, just to see some of the mental health issues over the years, uh, having such a, a a long time of working with them and seeing some of these guys for you know fifteen plus years now, some of them have really been through the ringer, and it, and, it, and a lot of it is is dealing with this idea. They feel. Um, they feel like people don't love them. They don't value their work because they're, you know, I live in Austin, Texas guys. Like we were talking about weather before we got on, you guys are like the doom and gloom. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like 75 degrees, sunny blue skies in October. Like people, I'm going to go ahead and get right? off this call like, now. Pe- I don't people, talk to you people are at, at, at town Lake. They're, they're like laying out. I mean, and then, and Sundays just seem to be beautiful in this city. Like I remember, as a pastor, we did. I, I I did for two years. I did outdoor church, and it rained maybe three times in two years on a Sunday. Like Austin, it just it never rains on Sunday. It's beautiful. It's just beautiful here. And so we these guys get so defeated. It's like. Oh, all right. people went to the lake or they went and did this or we're such an outdoor city. And and one of the things I think that we have to we have to shift. And I'm not saying that we we don't that we throw loyalty out. God forbid that. Right. I would be devastated if we if we didn't value <laughs> loyalty. But I think we have to be smart in what we call our people to be loyal to. Right. And so when we are saying, hey, be loyal to this Sunday experience. You give people no room to affiliate. You give them no room to connect. And, and, and really, that's the movement of our culture. But when we can say, is, hey, um, you can have all the affiliation you want as long as we have the relationship, right? And so if we're, if we're, if we're grounding ourselves, like you talked about new measurements, new metrics, if we can find a way to measure the relationship aspect um, and we give them the freedom to affiliate, to go do different things and experience different things, you're going to have a really strong connection, right? And so when me and Amy, when we first got married, talking about weight, I mean, one of the one of the worst weight gaining seasons of my life was our first year and a half of marriage. Because when we got married, um, man, we became, we nested and became so codependent on one another. It's like we, I mean, we were just so in love and fighting all the time because two completely worlds clashing. Um, but we were committed to one another and we'd really created this really codependent type relationship. So there was no room for affiliating with anything. So no room for working out, no room for habits, no room for hobbies or anything like that. So I, I just didn't do anything physical and gained so much weight. But now in our marriage where it's like, whoa, 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 this is not healthy. So now Amy's free to affiliate and connect and do all these other things. And there's the trust there that, hey, at the end of the day, I know where she's she's coming home. She's going to be here. We're together. Right. And so I can go collect toys and I can go to toy shows and do game nerd stuff and go to the movies and, and see weird films that she has no desire in seeing. And she can go do all the nerd things that she does, the Jeopardy and trivia and all that. And it's beautiful. Um, And we share in some of those things, but we have the freedom to go affiliate separately. And and again, it's not about, hey, we have to be loyal to these things and feel trapped. And so I'm rambling at this point, but 
I think there is some severe implications for the church that we have to figure out this affiliation because it is unreasonable to expect 100% participation in all of our, our services and offerings. And I'm actually surprised at how many pastors I talk to who are open to this idea. Like they, I hear pastors telling me, I'm okay if if they go do this thing over there and, and for the kingdom. They don't have to come to church here on Sunday, but they're still part of what we're doing. And then like, that's the way to think about it. That's the way it's like, how can you unleash your people that they're still a part of what you're doing, but you don't have to burden them with attendance to certain events and things like that, but you free them up, you free them up. All right. This conversation I think has been fantastic. Thank you guys for participating. Thank you guys for listening. I don't know where else to go. Oh, actually I do know where we're going to go. We're going to continue this conversation. And I actually, I think this last uh, this last issue, this affiliation is actually going to, is really the beginning of our next conversation. Uh, I think the next time we have our, our next deep dive on new powers, we're going to talk about participation. What does it look like to participate at a varying, at varying levels and in different ways? And so I'm really excited about that conversation because I think there are so many good insights for the church there. Um, so, but today we're going to wrap this up. All right. So if you want more on this topic, uh, make sure you're picking up new power by Jeremy Hyman's and, uh, Henry Timms. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation the rest of the season, but thank you for listening and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Forge America Missional Podcast. Forge America longs to see the reign of God revealed in the everyday spaces of life. To do this, we partner with a local church to mobilize the people of God to participate in the everyday mission of God. If you'd like to know more about Forge America, feel free to check us out at forgeamerica.com. You guys ready? All right, welcome to the roundtable. Uh, I'm joined today uh, with Blah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>